Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy. I should look a little different today because I'm on the road. I'm coming to you from LA and I am working off my laptop camera and a hotel room wall behind me with bad lighting. So we have to make allowances for that. The topic today is where is five? Meaning is a number like five or two or 10 million out there in reality? Is it only in the mind and not in reality or what? To what does five refer? What got me interested in doing this is that I'm on the kick of refuting Russell. And last time I attacked his uh, set theoretic paradox, although Russell didn't put it forward as some kind of disproof of reason or anything like that. Uh, he put it forward as the basis for uh, uh, what he called the stratified theory of types. But that has bad effects, so I didn't feel bad about attacking him. Today, we're going to discuss something that he holds in the Introduction to Mathematical Philosophy. It should be the Introduction to Philosophy of Mathematics. There's no such thing as mathematical philosophy. Chapter 2. But it's not just Russell. This view is really widespread. You probably hold it. He says, a trio of men, you know, Manny, Mo, and Jack, is an instance of the number three. So what does three refer to? To trios. No. A trio of men is not an instance of the number three. Here's another quote. The number three is something which all trios have in common and which distinguishes them from other collections. Well, that's better, but still that's off. Is not some... Uh, something which the, the number three does not refer to a common element among all the trios. Finally, we can suppose all couples in one bundle, couples now could have said trios, but it doesn't matter. Oh, I'm sorry, the next part brings in trios. We can suppose all couples in one bundle, all trios in another. Each bundle is a class of classes. So because he thinks that a trio is a class, if you put all the trios together in a class, you have a class of classes. No. Now he uses, I'm going to change for the next quote and uh, almost final quote. He uses the word similar to mean 
what we normally would mean by equal, equal amount. He talks about two classes being similar when you can match their members one to one. They have the same number of members. I wouldn't call that similar. I would call that equal. And so to avoid confusion, I'm going to change his word similar to equal. The number of a class is the class of all classes that are equal to it. And that's the big climax. The class of all couples will be the number two. So number two, the number two is all couples. So the number two is me and my wife, Ayn Rand and Frank O'Connor, Socrates and Xantippe, any other, uh, my pair of shoes, that's the number two, the class of all those. So you see how far we've gone from reality and from reasonableness. But wait, there's more. The next step, which I think Russell himself does take, I don't really recall the history here, is to define the number one. How do you define the number one? Well, you want a class that has exactly one member. Whereas there are many, many trios, there are many, many couples. Can you think of a class that has only one member? Yes, they could. The null set, the class of things that don't exist. It has no members, it has zero members. There's only one zero. So it's not like it includes the unicorns and Santa Claus and the present king of France. It doesn't include anything. It's empty, the empty set. There's not multiple things in it because those things don't exist. It's the empty set, the null set. So that is said to be one. The set of the null set has one member. And so that's the number one. And then what's the number two? Well, it's a set containing the null set and the set of the null set. That has two elements, the set of the null set and the null set. And then three is the set that contains the set of the set of the null set and the null set and the null set, if I've got that right. No, you probably need the, the I'm sorry, the set of the set of the null set, the set of the set of the set of the null set and the null set. It has three members and they go on that way. Now, starting from the zero, is a bad idea. You don't start a positive achievement like numbers with nothingness as the source of the basic concept. There really isn't any concept of nothingness. There's a, there's a concept of null, of, of zero, but that's a much later concept. The concept zero did not enter Western culture until the Middle Ages. I think the late Middle Ages, 
no child starts off counting zero, one, two. So it's a bad place to start. You should start with one. But even if you start with one, this set of sets of sets is not right. It is way wrong. It is completely off. So why? Because it sets, <laughs> it sets up sets at the foundation of something much simpler than sets, something you couldn't get to sets until after. So it's hierarchically wrong. You can't define something later. You can't, we can't reduce to reality something later to something still later. You can't build the 10th floor on the 11th floor or the 100th floor. You have to build it on the ground. You have to build it on something that's built on something that's built on something that's built on the ground. What is the ground? Perceptual reality. Numbers have to be based on sensory perception of reality. Ayn Rand reportedly told a friend of mine that one, the concept one refers to an object of perception considered a part. That makes sense to me. I don't know if she stood by that after she developed her more advanced theories, but it makes sense to me that one is something that you isolate from everything else that you're looking at. You could have two hands, and I hope you do, if you look at one of them, as opposed to both of them, one is the isolation of that object from other things. But let, let's start a little deeper with metaphysics. There is something in reality that we're dealing with. It is not numbers. Numbers are not in reality. But what is in reality? I mean, in mind-independent reality, in reality that exists whether or not there are any consciousnesses to see it, to perceive it. What exists in reality that all this is based upon? Quantity. Quantity. Quantity exists as in objective fact independent of anyone's awareness of it, anyone's wishes concerning it, anyone's hopes, dreams, fears. If there are five fingers on your hand, even if you can't count, even if you're deaf, there are that many, there's a certain amount of fingers on your hand. Quantity names the metaphysical fact that all of mathematics is dealing with. All of mathematics is an issue of identifying quantities. Now, how do we, um, well, no, I'm going to go on to how do we measure uh, quantities? How do we identify them when we measure them? But let me first apply this to my objection to Russell and everybody else practically. The 
trio and the couple are not instances of three and two. The quantity of a trio, the quantity of a couple is what three identifies. I have a pair of shoes. They have many attributes. They have a weight. They take up a certain amount of space. They have an age. They have a position. They have a history. Two does not refer to all those facts about the, any of those facts about the pair. It just names their quantity. So it is wrong to say my two hands are an instance of two. They aren't. The amount of hands I'm holding up now is two. Two stands for the quantity, not the hands themselves. You can hold on to my hands. I can make my hands hold on to each other here. But you can't hold on to the two-ness. The two-ness is not the thing, the object, the body, the entity, the two entities. It is the two-ness of them, it is the quantity of them, the amount of them. It's an answer to the question, how many hands are there? It is not the designation of couples or pairs. We have the concept pair. We have the concept trio. We have the concept quartet. We don't go very far with that, but we have names for the class of groups. But the numbers enumerate the quantity of the group. Two or five or five million answers the question, how many are there? Not which are there. Show me a two. Well, I'm not saying show me your two hands or two any other things or the class of all classes of two hands or whatever that would mean. It means show me things whose quantity is two. And how do we measure the quantity of a thing? By the way, Aristotle identified quantity as one of the primary irreducible categories of existence, along with attribute, action, relationship, those quantity, quality, place. Not all of them are really irreducible, but quantity certainly is. Quantity is not reducible to some other features. So um, how, do we, how do we measure quantity? How do we answer the question, how many? Well, how do we measure any attribute? How do we measure weight? Well, we compare, a, say you're wearing a person, you, you have him stand on a scale and you look for, uh, stand on a scale and look at the number of weights or the amount of leverage really, but in principle, the number of stones, if you use the English, system of weighing, 
that balance him, that are equal in weight to him. So you take examples of weight, concrete examples of weight. How do we measure lengths? Well, we have a ruler which has a certain length. And it's not the color of the ruler that we use, it's its length. And we say, we lay it off against the thing or the inch or the meter or the yard. We have a concrete instance of the property or attribute that we're trying to measure that we use as a standard. And when it becomes scientific is when we use the same standard, we don't switch and measure, you can ad hoc measure something by your hand and then measure by a certain stick you find and then later measure it by something else. But when science begins, when mathematics begins, you use a set uh, standard, a standard that does not change that you can use to measure quantity. So to measure quantity, like we measure length, weight, time, for example, we use a concrete instance of quantity. And just as we say, well, this bed is as long as three rulers laid end to end, has the same length, well, three wouldn't be it, uh, two yardsticks or three, even two and a half, a little more than two yardsticks laid end to end measures the length of this bed. So to measure the quantity of things in a group, like fingers on my hand, to measure the quantity of that, we relate it and say it's as many as. Now, usually we'll go the other way around since I've pick the hand, we'll say, I have as many sheep as I have fingers on this hand. And then a new sheep is born. You say, I have as many sheep as fingers on this hand and this hand all together. Primitive man counted his sheep. He had many more than six. He might have, you know, 22 sheep and he takes them out and he wants to make sure he's got them all when he comes home with them. None went astray. So he took a pouch with pebbles in it. And he starts out, puts a pebble in the pouch for each sheep as it passes out of the corral into the field. So he has as many sheep as he has pebbles in that pouch. And when they come home, he matches a pebble for each sheep. And if there's a pebble left over, some sheep is lost. So as many as some standard uh, amount, some standard quantity is the first measurement of how much quantity you've got. Now, fingers on the hand are often used for quantities that are small enough to deal with that way because you always have them with you. But we're still in the realm of pre-mathematics. If uh, you know, you ask a young boy how old he is, and he holds up three fingers, 
That doesn't mean he's got really the concept three yet. So what is it that numbers really do? Numbers substitute for a physical group, a group of symbols, the numerals themselves. Five is the fifth symbol. One, two, three, four, five. When I said five, I had counted each member of the group of fingers, including my thumb on my hand. The fifth symbol is five. So five is a symbol used as a counter by its position in a sequence of a fixed sequence of similar symbols. A number is a counter used to measure quantity. Quantity. A number is a counter. And the standard group behind any number is all the symbols leading up to it and including it. So five takes as its standard of measurement a quantity, the quantity of words I'm now going to say, one, two, three, four, five. Notice that the order of numbers is essential to them. We also have the order of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but that's not essential to it. If someone got it once is A, B, C, D, E, F, H, G, I, J, K, that wouldn't make any difference unless he's alphabetizing some papers or something. Order is handy for letters of the alphabet. Orders is the essence of numbers because each number has to get its identity from where it is in that sequence of numbers. You can't go one, two, six, four, three. You've destroyed the concepts involved by doing that and all of mathematics would fall. So the essence of number is that it's, it's a counter. And what is counting? Counting is matching each successive element in the things you're counting with the next numeral in the sequence of numerals. And when you've covered all and only of the things to be counted, the last symbol you say, the last numeral that you match with anything is a measure of the quantity because the number of symbols leading up to it is as many as the things you are counting. That's what counting is. So I think it's very revealing and simple to realize that counting, that numbers perform the same function as fingers, but they do so by not physical, a physical group, which is limited after all but a group you carry in your head, the numbers that you memorize. And the decimal system gives you a way to always extend 
that system of order without ever violating it. So you know that after 121,609 comes 121,610, even though you, to your best of your recollection, have never dealt with either number before. You may have somewhere, but you don't remember it. Now that raises an interesting question. How many numbers are there? Are there an infinite number of numbers? No, an infinite number is a contradiction in terms. The infinite is that which doesn't have a fixed number, but has a continually growing number to which you, you know, always, it's a process of always adding one more. Well, how many numbers are there then? Because I can make a new one by adding one more to it. The question is improper. The question is mistaken. The question has wrong premises. Let me give you an equivalent question. How many concepts are there? Well, you see, what do you mean in whose mind? In a three-year-old, maybe 12. In a, a peasant of the Middle Ages, maybe 2,500. In the mind of a, a very literate, erudite person, there might be 100,000 concepts. Well, it's the same with numbers. How many are there? And who's mine? Because that means how many symbols have the, has the person added to his counting system? And at first, you can only count to three, let's say. And then you get to eight or nine. And after a little while longer, you get further to 20. Then you get to the principle of the decimal system. And you can make an unlimited number, a number limited only by your physical resources, not by the mathematics. But let me show you a number that you have never, that has never been in existence before in anybody's mind. 6592386800001295066432199990000854216 that number may have been spewed out by a computer somewhere but it's not a number that has ever existed before. It's just, there are just too many possible combinations to get to before that. No one has ever thought that you haven't, I haven't. So uh, once you grasp that numbers are counters and that their purpose is to measuring, is to measure quantity by identifying a quantity in relation to the number of numbers to count it, everything gets simplified. You can answer the question, how many numbers are there? How many numbers you got? How many numbers have you formed? 
because numbers do not exist in external reality, they're counters. And imagine you said, how many counters are there? Well, for whom? So it's much simpler. It doesn't require sets of sets. And it rings true, doesn't it? Counting, you want to know how many there are, you count them which means you assign a symbol, a sound. You say, if you're not saying it in your mind, one, two, three, and you point to the four, five, six. Oh, there's six. Because that's the last thing I said. It's the last symbol I said. And there are six symbols leading up to six and including six. Okay, um, let's see if we have a question here. Uh, that relates to any of this. Do you think Hilbert's program could be attainable if it built on top of a solid philosophical foundation? Well, Hilbert had a program at the turn of the 20th century to provide rigor to arithmetic. I'm against that. I don't see the need for rigor for the self-evident. I don't see the need for proofs and rigor of the um, easily attainable solutions to the self-evident. Now, number theory, which is sometimes referred to wrongly as um, arithmetic, there are many conjectures and ideas in number theory which do have to be proven. And Hilbert wanted to axiomatize arithmetic so that number theory proofs could be attained automatically or at least rigorously, and we would check them. We would, we could, a computer could check them. No, I don't think that's attainable. I think Gödel showed that, that it's not attainable, but I don't think it's desirable. Not that it's undesirable, but I don't think it's necessary. I think the idea of proof in mathematics in general is way overdone. Yeah, there's a role for it, but it's not what mathematicians should essentially be doing. All math should be applied math. If it can't be applied, it's nonsense. Now, let me give you an example of some nonsense. The current work working out of the decimal points of pi, you know, the Greek letter pi for the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. How many decimal points do you think they've carried it out to? 68 trillion. Now that has no function whatsoever. Maybe someday it will have some function. I doubt it. I can't conceive of what would have any use, where there'd be any use for that. And I know the arguments that would be put forward in saying there are more things than you imagine, Horatio, in your philosophy. 
Yeah, but my name's Harry. It's not Horatio. And there's not more things than I imagined my philosophy. There's more things than you imagine, Shakespeare, when you say there are more things that you can imagine, Horatio. So, no, but if you need it, call me and we'll give it to you when you need it. In the meantime, it's pointless. It's not mathematics. It's not counting. It's not numbering. It's not identifying quantity. It's just playing. And they probably have a government grant to do it. So I think Hilbert was a villain. I'm not absolutely sure of that. In fact, I'm not even close to absolute. It's a hunch from what I've read of Hilbert. I think he was a villain. I actually have a better view of Frege if you're into that kind of stuff than I do of Hilbert. But the real villain is Cantor. He's the real villain in this. He's, he's the one who severed math from reality. And for more on that, read uh, Robert Knapp's very fascinating book that I think I agree with entirely. I know I agree with a lot of it anyway. It's called Mathematics is About the World. He's also an advocate of Ayn Rand's philosophy, and I've been acquainted with him for some 55 years. Not that I may at all maintain constant connection with him, but he goes back a long way as a student of the philosophy, and he's a mathematician. Uh, well, he has a PhD in math, I think, from Princeton. You can look on the, on the jacket. And he knows a lot more about this than I do. But what I'm going after is the stuff that a layman can verify, like what I've covered today. So uh, that's my attempt to answer Jamie Hernandez's question. And uh, I will see you next week. The topic will be announced. Thank you for attending this week. Goodbye for now.